This and Dutch. Dyslexia audio transmission. Welcome to This and That, the dyslexia podcast from the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. My name is Amy Smith and I am the Information and Advocacy Coordinator here at the Dyslexia Association. Hello, I'm Donald, Donald Ewing. I'm an educational psychologist with the Dyslexia Association. You're very welcome to the podcast. We are delighted to welcome our guest this afternoon, who is Sean. Sean is a member of our Board of Management at the Dyslexia Association and we're delighted that he's coming uh, to talk to us this afternoon. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Sean, what we do in this podcast is one of the things we, we, we have is, so you can see this big magic hat in front of you. It's full, chock full of questions. We keep adding really interesting questions to it, and people have been suggesting questions in our email and on Facebook and Twitter. So we have a bunch of questions in there that we're going to get to, but I think it's maybe, um, maybe we'll kick off with just asking you, could you say... A little bit about yourself and uh, maybe just introduce yourself to, to our listeners. Yes, um, my name's Sean O'Connor. Um, as you can hear, I, I'm, I'm not originally from here. I, I'm from uh, Manchester in the UK. Been living in Ireland for the last 12 years. Um, have thought about going back the odd time um, to Manchester. Similar weather to Dublin, but uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy it um, here in the city. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Sean. Uh, Amy, would you like to rummage in the big magic hat first? I will. I particularly like the addition of the diamantic question marks. I think that we've jazzed it up a bit now that we're so successful. So I, I think it's brilliant. Um, oh, so the first question we have is, um, when did you find out you were dyslexic? And can you tell us a little bit maybe about that? Yeah, it, it was... Um, it, it was it, quite a strange story but not actually strange compared to maybe some of the uh, other <laughs> podcasts I you know I was, it seems to be a, a fam- familiar kind of um, state of history um, I f- actually found out when I was 27 okay. um, which was quite unusual but did I know that I was uh, dyslexic um, I knew that I wasn't the, the, the same as everyone in my class and I think certainly through school um, I, I had to say uh, quite a lot of difficulties. So really, from um, being a young kid, um, you know, I remember my mum taking me to school and dropping me off the first day, and not wanting to be there like every other kid. But um, I, I just didn't really grasp the reading and writing at all, and I became very much um, at the bottom of the class very, very quickly. And certainly, when I was six and seven, um, I was um, asked to go along to special reading and writing class. Which um, I quite like the word special. It made me feel uh, great, and uh, I went to, went along to this special reading and writing class. And luckily, I was with a, an awful lot of people who were like me. Um, I thought that I was a bit stupid and thick, which is normal label that people like with dyslexia put on themselves. Yeah. And um, the problem what I had then is that because you know I was struggling so much at school, um, it, had a, it had a massive effect on my life because you're only a young boy. You know, uh, you don't really know what's going on. You spend m- most of your time at school. And um, I developed quite a lot of anxiety um, around my whole life and well-being, to be honest with you. I was extremely happy at home. I'm one of eight kids, a, a mum and dad. It's like a tribe at home. Mm-hmm. It's all good mickey-taking and good fun. And I was comfortable there, but school was horrible. So when you're coming last all the time, and I remember one point having to go and read in front of the class, which is something people used to do very much to kids in the, in the 1970s. I remember actually wetting my trousers in front of everybody and, yeah. you know, everyone thought that was quite funny. 
I didn't think it was quite funny at all, but I remember going to the kind of rummaging around the um, old clothes box and getting a change of underwear and going back to class. So the problem I had with that is it gave me a very, very, uh, it gave me an awful lot of anxiety. And leading on from being anxious, I, I kind of had a, a problem with eating as well yeah. because that, that shut down the element of um, self-worth, if you want. I understand it now. I didn't then. Yeah. I, I can articulate it well now. But um, I didn't feel like, you know, I should be knocking around really. So consequently, end up in hospital because I wasn't eating and uh, I had problems with my stomach and things like that. And this is a really weird thing to say, but hospital at that time was the happiest place I, I could possibly be in because yeah. I didn't have to go to school. I had a wonderful two weeks of hospital. Mm. I really did. I really, really enjoyed myself because it took all that pressure off me. Yeah. And the nurses and doctors, you know, helped an awful lot. And then, obviously, you just go back to school. But from then on in, strangely enough, I uh, understood that I start, started to manage my expectations, which, I, you know, which is good as an adult now, but I really re- recognise now that I'm at the bottom anyway. So I can try, but I know I'm going to come last. So that's, that's fine with me. Yeah. And that really went into to secondary school. Um, you know, um, obviously, none of the teachers were picking up on, on the dyslexia. I was just in all the bottom sets. With, with other kids who were either truant or dotting around, really. Mm. And um, from that, just, you know, went into secondary school. Thoroughly enjoyed secondary school. I like woodwork. I like, you know, uh, metalwork. Love sport. So I concentrated on all them. Uh, as many people from Manchester believe, every lad's going to be a footballer <laughs> <laughs> or James Bond or a rock star. I didn't know which one I, I would become first. <laughs> but um, certainly w- went on through school with like that. So... I was always coming like 26 out of 26 in the class um, and sometimes I got a bit competitive of not to come last. Um, th- that would be a set goal for me, not okay. to come 26th. Yeah. And when I left school at 15 and people said, why did you leave school at 15? Because they wouldn't let me leave at 14, to be honest with you. Um, there's really no point in me really being there um, apart from yeah, I had to go. And then, you know, being in school, I remember going to the, the um, you know, career guidance teacher and uh, he brought all three of us in at one go uh, instead of all the clever kids one by one because he was, he was obviously you know, running out of time. And he just said, Sean, Sean, he said, it's O'Connor. You call people O'Connor in school. He said, O'Connor, get up, lad. And he, he just did this kind of moving from hands to one side thing. He said, can you do that, lad? I said, yeah. He said, test goes for you. So I sat down. And, you know, you might think that is absolutely awful to hear, but I was actually quite pleased <laughs> in some ways because what yeah. he'd done, he'd identified Tesco's as an employer... Tesco's is nice and warm, you got a free uniform, there's cheap food every now and again. And like I saw it as a positive sitting down, I wasn't upset about it. I just thought, well, actually, probably that's where I'm at. Mm. And uh, I, I left school of uh, very poor uh, GCSEs, DZs and Fs and things like that because I just didn't, didn't do well. But that's what I expected. And then I, then I just went in, luckily enough, to do an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship kind of saved my life, if you want to put it that way, because I'm very practical. Mm. So I went in working mechanical engineering apprenticeship for four years and, and worked all around the UK and then I got, I got a very good job and uh, working for an American oil company for another five and a half years so I put all that put all that, uh, that into into practice but luckily when you're working in engineering I, I, I'm good at reading uh, designs and uh, drawings and measuring and stuff like that so it's quite all right with that but when I actually decide to make a change in my life and going on quite a bit now but when I'm trying to try to make a change in my life I saw right okay engineering's fine if you want to hang around with loads of uh, very muscly, sweaty men, which some people do, to be honest. <laughs> I could think of worse. <laughs> but but, uh, but I, I just, you know, I just kind of got fed up a bit. But I wanted to work with people. Um, I understood that I had a, a, a bit of a passion to help people who hadn't got a, a good start 
or who, you know, uh, you know, in some way. So I remember going to, to night school and terrified of night school, terrified of it because I'm back into education and back to losing my confidence again yeah. after building it up to such a, such a good degree. And I went into a hall with loads of people knocking around and I just said, listen, I want to work with, some, uh, with people and w- what could I do? And the guy said, well, there's social work over there, there's youth work and there's counselling. Pick a queue. I picked the counselling queue because it was smaller. And that's it. You know, that really, really was <laughs> where, you know, an organic way of, of, of uh, pathing your career. So went into counselling, did that, did a lot of night school, did a lot of voluntary work in the evening, worked in prisons and stuff. But when I went to got my new job in drugs and alcohol um, in, in Manchester, in Oldham, part of being a caseworker or a project worker, you do lots of case notes. So I come and see, you, you come and see me, Amy, and then I'd write up the notes. But at once a month, then you go down to the manager and the manager would say, OK, Sean, who have you seen? And I go, well, I've seen Amy. And my manager at the time, Gwen Hyme, a lovely lady, said, are you rushing your notes? Are you rushing these notes? Mm. And I said, Gwen, I said, that's the third copy I've written because I, I, it takes me a long time to, yeah. to get around. I don't know what it is. I'm a bit daft. I'm sorry about that. And she said, you know, have you ever been tested for dyslexia? And I went, no, no. She said, well, it wouldn't be a bad idea, you know, just in case because you could get some support. So... Clicked in, clicked in my head. At the time, I'd, I'd started back in night school, you know, again, and uh, I got a, a very quick assessment here uh, at, at a college in, in Manchester. said, yeah, you have dyslexia. And then I went on then and I got another dyslexia assessment, a proper one, as you would say, here in Ireland when I was 32, yeah. which told me everything I already knew, but certainly helped me identify maybe some um, strengths and supports of, of how I could manage that. Sorry, that's a very long answer. No, but really, that's and I've missed out loads of chunks. But really, that's when I found out twenty seven. And can I ask, just in terms of what was the emotion when you finally got told you're dyslexic? Sometimes we notice that people who were assessed when they were much younger. So I was assessed when I was seven and a half. So I kind of grew up with dyslexia. Yeah. Um, whereas you were kind of con- you know confronted with dyslexia at twenty seven, mm-hmm. and then formally, I suppose, at, mm-hmm. in your thirties, and and what that emotion was. Yeah, I think I was relieved um, when I was 27 and I found out that, you know, I told all my family, uh, my wife, you know, I was married at the time with my wife, I don't know, we were just going out together then, but um, I was relieved, you know, I was relieved that I wasn't stupid because I'd, I'd thought about thought about being stupid for a long time yeah. and I'd kind of, you know, moved, you know, stayed away from, you know, uh, anything to do with maths or if you want to put it or calculations because I just can't do them, you know. Yeah. And I, I, so, but it, I was quite relieved then and I thought, okay, well, you know, well, what, what can I do? What kind of support can I get around this? And like, there isn't that much support, you know, even in yeah. Manchester, people still don't get it. And they do now, but uh, an awful lot more, but there's significant improvements that need to happen. But no, I was relieved and, and uh, it, did, it did help me a little bit. Didn't hold me back at all um, because, you know, I, I could realise then what I was good at. Yeah. And I used that to the best of my ability. Sean, I, I'd like to ask you, um, we always ask uh, guests on the podcast about this, but can you identify individuals who have been really important to you, either in providing support or kind of giving you advice around dyslexia or you know, issues related to it? Yeah, I think, you know, I was very lucky to get the, you know, the full assessment here in Ireland and I really found that beneficial and, and I, I have the copy at home filed away. But it's like two people, I think really going back to when I was young, my mum, you know, understood that, that something wasn't right. She, she didn't have the right, she was very dyslexic herself, you know, so she didn't really understand what supports were out there to go and gain 
get help from, but she never really had any any problems. She was always supportive when things weren't going right. Mm-hmm. She'd always say, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. It's only school. You know, just try your best. It doesn't really matter. So that was kind of where I got the managing expectations from. So I, I managed them to a level where I, I, know, I, could, I could manage my anxiety and I was a bit more happy. But I think certainly, you know, in my adult years, and, and I've done lots of different jobs and I'm always doing different things, you know, um, I'm quite creative. And my wife has always been a, a great support because when she met me, I was working in engineering and, like, I was doing a job and it was fine. But to go back to night school, retrain and do several other new jobs since then and move countries mm. and, and, you know, renovate houses and all this kind of stuff. She's never been standing in any way saying, oh, hold on a minute, you, need, you, know, you, you know, is this a little bit beyond you? Even yeah. though I've thought about it that I'm really putting myself out there and I think you have to you know to, to, to grow you have to stretch and I'm always ha- happy now to be in that uncomfortable space where I know that I'm probably at the the outer limits of my ability but it's moved on my ability's grown so much I, I'm quite comfortable all the time but th- they've been a great support to me and still are to this yeah my wife is still is very supportive to mm. this day that's really interesting because we spend a lot of time when we're doing talks to parents and to teachers about having high expectations for people with dyslexia, when it comes to kind of creativity, intellectual capacity, uh, thinking, uh, but then reasonable expectations when it comes to spelling, handwriting, reading speed, things like that. Sure. And it's that kind of, it's a little bit of a subtle message, high expectations for some stuff mm-hmm. and reasonable ones for the other. Does that kind of chime with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I like, you know, I think certainly for, you know, all through my education, <clears throat> even in my college education, it helped being having dyslexia in some ways because uh, I was able to identify that to the tutor when I was doing all, all my qualifications and they, they, they made um, you know, some changes, gave me more time to do my coursework, they, they asked me what colour marker they wanted to use on the board, asked me when there's 20 other people there so the, the, obviously the letters wouldn't run into each other when I, when, uh, when I got tired. But you know, they, they, you know, that is a great help but I, I just think you know, it would have been easier maybe if I was a bit younger that I could have been identified because mm-hmm. I have nephews and nieces who've got dyslexia and dyspraxia and things like that and luckily that they've been identified earlier they got the good supports in college they got more time for exams and so on and so forth but even when I'm applying for a job or um, doing anything now if there's any aspect of intellectual disability I always put it down you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact and like I also want to know what support you're going to give me in, in these areas because yeah. I think there's a level of understanding that still needs to happen out there Actually, I think that's a really good point in terms of, um, I do that as well. So I always tick the um, box to say that I have a disability mm-hmm. and in every interview I talk about my dyslexia um, and I talk about how it's one of my greatest strengths and all the amazing things I have and they could get all of those things and me, but they might have to put a free computer program on my laptop, you know, so yeah. it's kind of a good bargaining tool. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people with dyslexia are often hesitant um, because I think because it is an invisible disability, there is this concept that we are somehow gaming the system or you're getting extra time which you don't deserve or, you know, so if, if you could say something to people who are maybe starting college um, and are hesitant to go to their support, uh, the access support or something, would you encourage them well, to it, do that? Absolutely, you know, that's why supports are there, you know, you know it, it's, it's about equality, not inequality, like, you know, it's about people being equal. And if you can identify that, you know, you have dyslexia or dyspraxia or, or something like that, you, you bring that to whoever the authority is there and let them know that. And then look at what supports they will give you. And, and don't give up on that as well, because what you're, you're doing at an early stage is identifying your level of need. And it's for them to try and address that all the way through your four years of college, which is, which is a long time. Yeah. And as we know, is that if you don't get it right at the very beginning, 
lots of people drop out by December, they get stressed, they get anxious, mm. and, and people don't feel, fulfil their, their potential. I know lots of people like me who've never fulfilled their potential because what they were told at school, you know, just didn't sink in, and, and they believe they're not good at anything. So that they fulfilled their destiny and became a victim of their, you know, of society, of where they're at, and say, well, I'll never achieve anything, so I'll just do something bad or naughty, and I get myself in trouble, or I'll, I'll do this and that. And that's a shame, because some of them were bright lads, and they're just, well, they're either in custody or doing something that, that's mm. not great. And you work a lot around uh, the issues, issues around mental health, yeah. Sean, currently. Mm. Do you think there's any connection between things like dyslexia and mental health? Well, you know, I certainly think even with, with my own story, with, you know, with, with getting anxiety, and like anxiety didn't finish in 1990. Yeah. It, it's there all the all way through your life. And like certainly from, from my point of view, being anxious and having anxiety, it, it's a bit of a wrestle every morning or every day. You know, he, they win sometimes and sometimes I win, and it's a constant thing. And I've got that from not being identified at an early age with dyslexia, not getting the supports there. I think my life would have been quite different. You know, I wouldn't say better, but might have been different from, from that. But I, I think what it is is that, you know, certainly if people haven't had a, 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 a you know, assessment and feel that they're, they're falling behind in school or college, is that it may be an area where they should look into. Because, you know, there's no, just, no good someone saying, well, I'm just a bit daft or stupid. You know, I never, I never really understood maths. There's probably, there could be a very good reason for that. And that's where you can get the supports to help you. Yeah. And because the level of anxiety and mental health, you know, in the country, you know, is suffering. And whatever supports people can get and talk about it, the better. So we run um, uh, Dyslexia and Me which is like a self-esteem workshop that I created for young people with dyslexia where they can kind of learn to understand their dyslexia and um, you know we're very honest about the difficult aspects of dyslexia but then we also talk about all the brilliant things that come along with dyslexia and one thing we do is we create we talk about the positive words we associate with our dyslexia like creativity outside the box thinking um, you know great personalities clearly clearly shown the great yeah, personality okay. aspect. Thank you very much. Um, but also some of the negative words that we associate. Um, and I think, I honestly believe that every dyslexic person has like a word that makes like their back tense up that was used about them. So mine is careless. So kind of when I do something that now I recognise as a dyslexic thing, like I omit a word or I multiply instead of divide, even though the symbol's in front of me, um, my teachers would say, oh, that was a careless mistake or you're being careless. Yeah. You mentioned a few words there that a lot of the kids would talk about, the young people would talk about in dyslexia and me, kind of thick and stupid and things like that. Is there a certain word where you're like, oh, makes you feel a bit... <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, I think the one we kind of get you, gets you back up, you know, like and it's one that was around for a long time, just, you, you're just thick. Yeah. You know, and, and that would have been, uh, you know, even, it, not necessarily articulate, articulated all the time, but certainly meant in a way because it's compounded by the fact that you're coming last and, and, and you're not able to do things. It's that. But I, I beat myself up about that as well sometimes because, you know, I do a lot of administration, do a lot of emails, I write reports and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes it's only when I read the email for the third time, oh, God, Sean, that's, you've, missed a little, you've hit an S there and there's a bit there and a bit there. But I, because people know what I'm like, it's yeah. fine. And luckily, I have colleagues when I'm writing reports where I, I'll give it the bare bones of it and they'll tidy it up and, and, and it'll be fantastic. But no, I, I, I've been, you know, I, I've had a comment about things being messy and rushing yeah, and like which I think, crikey! If you knew how much time I spent, um, doing this compared to my colleague next to me, 
Yeah. Um, you wouldn't say that I'd rushed it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that is just about the education of that person, really. But um, so I think I've got a bigger engine. I have to work a little bit harder sometimes than the guy next to me. But I, I've got the capacity to do that. But, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that I've got used to over the years. But, yeah, it, messy, uh, you know, or rushed. I remember people saying, that, you know, certainly even in the workplace, have you rushed this? And kind of growling in my stomach a little bit. I'm pain in my spine. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, I think that there is a lot of kids and when you kind of listen to them, like they say things like lazy has replaced stupid because the teacher mm. won't call you stupid in the classroom. Mm. You may call yourself stupid, but a teacher will say lazy a lot, which yeah. is still beyond me because I've never to this day met a lazy no. dyslexic no, child. No, I remember being called lazy when I was about 28, 29 and I, w- I was very, very unhappy with the person that said it to me because, you know, that was something that I'm definitely not yeah. you know I, I work very very hard and I do lots of different things but um that would be a word that really you know I was gonna say get the hair back on you know the hair on the back of my neck but I've got a shaven head I've got no hair <laughs> um but yeah you know that certainly be one but like I, I strongly believe that, and I really do believe this and I'm not making it up is that I think everybody's good at something yeah I think like, I did a motivational workshop yesterday with people who were unemployed and some of them were, were you know were in in, in kind of a a very, very low self-esteem, low motivation aspect. But I could see sparkle, you know, in a few of the people there. And I, and I could see myself in a couple of them as well. And it's just because they're at that, that point, mm. you know, they've been told by everybody in society and everything that think they're not good enough, they're not, not fitting in. Yeah. But once you've got people talking and open up a little bit, you can see actually, you'd be very good at this, you know, and you got, you know, a great thing from them. So I believe everybody's good at something. Yeah. And I think you should never, ever give up. But you do need that... Um, person to support you you do need you know friends and family to do that and because it's quite a lonely road dyslexia you know you really are by yourself you're quite isolated sometimes and you you get quite angry especially when you get something wrong that means a lot to you you get you get why did I do that I think we have a tendency to be very hard on ourselves as well I would totally read through things and I've proofread them six times yeah and then I look at it and I'm like oh my new you know and it's just um, I think you can be tend to be self-critical because you're almost expecting that from others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I, I don't know the difference between there and there still oh. now. And it doesn't mean anything to me at all. Yeah. And I've kind of stopped apologising about it now. And I said, well, you get it, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You oh, know, yeah. like it, it's in the same sentence. You, you understand that. Can't tell the difference between <laughs> does and dose. So my emails can yeah, be very confusing. Yeah. The, who, the who and how was a big one for me because I know the who are, are, are an amazing English rock band. And, you know, so I always think music, who? Yeah. So I get that, and that's my little reminder. Excellent. <laughs> There's a terrible snobbery about spelling as well, and spelling yeah. mistakes, yeah. which is quite an intimidating backdrop. I'm thinking of things like Twitter, where someone makes, you know, this is a format where you're quickly firing yeah, yeah, off yeah. a message, and you make a little bit of a grammatical or spell mistake, and someone who has clearly no, nothing better to do with their time um, goes to the trouble to point it out to you, and it just seems... <laughs> pretty futile and misses the point of the message. Yeah, that's true. Sean, I'd like to ask you a question to put your strategic hat on for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could sort of, if you think about another uh, young Sean at school in Manchester or Mallow or Mullingar, mm-hmm. what advice would you be giving to the principal of Sean's school? And what advice would you be giving to the Minister for Education for 
either England or Ireland in that regard, what stuff do we need to do differently to make sure that the next Sean doesn't have the experience that you had? Absolutely. You know, I think you know that that's a nice question, isn't it? You know, my strategic hat is is really to to talk to the government minister and the Department of Education, and to see if they get it. Sometimes I don't think they actually get it. They, they, they know what you're talking about and they go, very good, and they'll nod your head and, and think that's a fantastic idea and we'll think about it. But, you know, engagement is, is really, really important. And, I, and, and, and I've been here for 12 years and I haven't seen them engage fully yet. And I think that's why I've joined the Board of Dyslexia Association of Ireland because I think there's, there's work to be done there. Mm. Every school in itself is a little own independence, isn't it, really? And, and schools can thrive under a good head and they can go downhill with a bad head, head teacher. Now, what I would say to, to teaching staff and head teachers is that, you know, you've got 24 kids in front of you. Yes, 12 of them might be as bright as a button, and, like, they are going to do well if you're not there, you know, or someone else is. They're yeah. fine. I'd look at the back of the class. Look at the people at the back, because I think they've just got as much to contribute to life as everybody else. So educate yourself. You're in, you're in education. Why wouldn't you want to do further education in, 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 in identifying mm. the need of the people in front of you? So... It really should be a compulsory element for all, all teaching staff across the country to have a, a, a significant segment of their training in training college about dyslexia yeah. and all other learning difficulties that, that children go in into school with that are undiagnosed. I think that should be a core element of it because what it is, if they understand the uh, dyslexia or any other uh, you know, intellectual disability, then they will be able to identify and support it at an earlier stage. Yeah. Instead of doing with something and saying, this kid is nine, he's a disaster, he's all over the place, he can't sit still, he's disruptive. Do you know why the kid's disruptive? Because you don't really understand that child. Yeah. You know, so if you educate yourself better as a, as a, as a, as a head, as an individual uh, teacher, but also from a department, department point of view, they need to take it seriously, need to engage appropriately, need to fund us appropriately as well. You know, if, if they did everything that they, they needed to do, we wouldn't need to be here. Yeah. Do you understand? You know, so if they actually took it on, on appropriately and addressed this across the nation and it was part of the, the curriculum in the training college and it's part of you know, additional learning when the teachers go back, that would be fine. Now, I, I know teachers come in here and they do further training, which is absolutely amazing, which yeah. is great. However, they could have been teaching for 20 years before they've come in here. Absolutely. And yeah. how many children have been left behind in that time? Thousands, to be honest with you. Yeah. And the thousands of, of young people are wandering around downstairs now with not much to do. Yeah, absolutely. I am a big fan of accessing kind of literature and information in different ways, so not necessarily reading them, so things like podcasts or audiobooks or things like that. Uh, are you a fan, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, I do a lot of driving, so I, I'm sat in the car a lot, and um, I tend to, before I get in the car, I plan my journey, um, not not distance-wise, but what I'm going to listen to-wise. <laughs> um, so it's normally, uh, I listen to lots of the, the Guardian podcasts, like, I like the football podcast on that. Uh, I like your podcast, obviously. I've You're listened to them good, up Sean. to now, and, and, and that's why I'm here. But yeah, so you know, I listen to a lot of that. You know, I, I, I do love music as well. I'm not a reader. I've never been a reader, and I think that's really down to me struggling to read. Mm. And when I do read um, books now, I, you know... Um, they, they generally are books I have to read, do you understand, rather yeah. than, than I want to read. Yeah. You know, my wife reads every night, you know, she, you know, she, she, she reads a real bookworm. I'm not. If I read any more than a few pages, I get tired. 
and that's what even if it's a funny book I've tried funny books and all sorts of I love the podcasts you know I find it very very interesting you know I wrote a book a couple of years ago myself well wow. which was a bit peculiar and the reason why I wrote a book because I think I wouldn't be because I didn't think I'd be able to mm. yeah so I set myself a target to write a book and I wrote a book on coaching and, and uh, you know well-being and it's great, it's on Amazon, and, and you know, it's in bookshops and things like that. You give us a name, so oh, we can yeah. see your sales spike. Yeah, it's, yeah, sorry, it's, it's a called The Key to Helping Yourself. Yeah, and, and it's a small, very, very small book. It's a very straightforward book, but it's basically an, introducing, uh, an introduction to coaching and stuff. So, um, But yeah, you know, so it, again, you know, I, I, it's a small book because that's the kind of book I would read. And that's why, I, I, you, know, it's, it, you know, that's why I wrote it, and that's why it's only 100 pages long. Yeah. yeah, I often speak to parents, and they're very worried because they're a reader, and they want their child to have this kind of love um, of reading. And I feel like sometimes I'm the one that has to break the bad news that that may never happen. So they should be encouraged to read and they absolutely need to learn how to read. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication. But they may not have that love of reading. But they will find something that will give them that information that they can learn from in lots of different mediums. So they can listen to an audiobook. So they can be technically reading and getting the same information as you do yeah. but it's just through a different form so I think it's important that as adults we do acknowledge that some of us aren't readers yeah absolutely like I'm informed you know I, I'm not you know putting my head in, 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 a, in, a, in a box every night not wanting to know what's going on I want to know what's going on but I, I generally do it through audio through listening yeah. uh, I listen to audio books or in the car or anything like that but you know it's not because, uh, you know, oh, I can't be bothered reading or, you know, I, I don't enjoy it. It's just that I find it difficult. Yeah. It tires me out. Yeah. If you want Sean to go to sleep, give me a book and I'm gone after a page and a half. I mean, I have to tired and all that kind of stuff. So, no, it's not for me. And I, but I'm not avoiding being informed or realising that J.K. Rowling wrote some amazing books, so, you yeah. know, uh, that, that my wife loves and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's not, it's not in that I'm not in that capacity at all. I think it's great. I think it's nice to see that. And I think it's also comforting for parents to hear as well sometimes because... You know, there is that fear of like, if they're if they're not a reader, what will they do on holidays? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I sit in the dark most days, and there are readers <laughs> on the dark, but they're reading trash some of the time. So I don't think they're as informed as Sean because <laughs> they're you know the stuff they're accessing. Mills and Boone. Well, it's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> Mills and Boone readers move to Kindles. And <laughs> This is my favourite question. I think you only get me on the podcast, Donald, to ask this question. But um, it's probably only a question another dyslexic can ask. Um, and that's, if they created a magic pill that would get rid of your dyslexia in the morning, would you take it and why? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's a bloody good question, isn't it, really? And I think it's depending on mood of that morning as well, <laughs> to be honest with you. But listen, you know, uh, I, I obviously spoke about, uh, you know, having anxiety, you know, and I think a lot of that was down to obviously education and not fitting in and becoming last. But it hasn't held me back at all, dyslexia. What I've done, it's become my little friend, to be honest with it that way. I, I know what I'm good at. Yeah. You know, I'm 44 now, unfortunately, but I know what, I, what my strengths are. And my weaknesses in life, I've worked at. So finance and, and numbers use, it, it was a weakness for years and years, and I, I didn't pay any attention to it. And then I realised, you know, I'm going to have to. So now I'm pretty good at them. I'm pretty okay at them. Yeah. I, I understand them. But I remember, you know, certainly, you know, when I mentioned earlier on moving jobs, moving round, and I was putting myself, you know, in front of people, not getting a break and, you know, coming third and fourth in interview panels. But certainly when I, um, when I worked in drugs and alcohol, I managed the uh, drugs and alcohol services in Manchester City Centre, which is obviously a very, very busy place and lots of clients and 38 staff. And it was, it was a great time for me. I was only 28. I was wow. very young. 
as a service manager. Um, but I, I'm, I've got a great belief, and my luckily enough, at the, the CEO at the time had a great belief in ability. Yeah. Can you do it? Not who you're related to or how old you are. Um, so they gave me an opportunity when I was 28 to be to start a brand new service, to find a building, to find the staff, to get the clients through the door, and they did it really, really quickly. And Amazing. it was one of the, the happiest times I had, you know, uh, as a young manager. At the same time, strangely enough, I remember um, thinking back to some of the lads I went to school with and how some of them had gone on a different path. And I remember meeting a guy. I was working in drugs and alcohol as a prison link worker, so I was working with people who had gone into custody because they had drugs and alcohol problems and yeah. they were bouncing in and out of prison. I remember bumping into a lad I went to school with coming out of prison one yeah. day and, you know, thinking, you know, that lad was, was bright. He was bright in certain ways, but not academic. Yeah. And the lad was leaving prison. So, and he's telling me about story and everything like that. And I go, okay, well, fair enough then. You know, this you've done that and you had to go to prison because you did something bad. But then again, I thought to myself, well, when p- people are going to court, there's also a lot of people, that, 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 the magistrates in England, uh, didn't understand. So I thought, I can do that. So strangely mm-hmm. enough, is what it is, is that in England, you, you apply to be a magistrate, you know, you get an application form. This is yeah, a long time ago. I was, you know, um, it was 16, it was uh, 18 years ago. Well, Crikey. And uh, 18 years ago. So you apply to be a magistrate and you, get, you, get, uh, you come into an interview they ask you questions like, um, what do you think about the war in Iraq? What do you think of racism in the police force? How can you be mature? You're only 28, you're only a kid. Um, tell me three things you really hate. Um, they're the interview questions you get. So it's not, it's not a really balanced kind of interview, but they do that for two hours and then bring you back in a few weeks later for another two hours and do that. Luckily enough, you know, I was appointed to the bench, which is a real big thing. Um, at the age of 28, I was the youngest magistrate out of 35,500 wow. in the UK. And um, I remember telling um, my boss at the time, and he said, Sean, you like, should be in the dock yourself. <laughs> Don't mind um, sending people to custody on a Thursday. Um, but certainly, you know, as an achievement, and certainly at a period in my life where things are, you know, things are great now, by the way, you know, yeah. but, but at an early age where dyslexia hadn't really fundamentally took me off the tracks a few times, yeah. I put myself soundly on the tracks and, and worked very, very hard. And, and to be... To, to become a, a justice of peace and magistrate in the UK at that age and manage drug and alcohol services in Manchester City Centre at 28 is a significant achievement. And, and I only look back on it now and go, crikey, you know, that was really, really good, wasn't it? And, um, but yeah, so I'd still take the dyslexia pill. It was, it was very, very uncomfortable at times when I was very, very young. However, I've learned a thing called resilience. Yeah. And I'm very resilient now and I'm quite tough. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm quite, quite a tough cookie, really. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, I get tired, I get grumpy, I get hungry, I get all those kind of things that, that, that people do. But I can generally sit down and, and, and work it out and uh, I'm creative enough to figure out an, a, an, an option A, B, C, W, X, Y and Z. Yeah. And, and I work it that way. Yeah, so you definitely think that you're what you've got and you're all of your um, amazing other talents definitely outweigh the, the other difficulties. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like you know, I'm very good at communicating. Um, you know, I, I like engaging with people. Um, I, I'm not scared of standing up in front of a big crowd and talking. Um, that is that is a key key skill of mine, and I'm, I'm normally slightly better than the person sat next to me. Yeah. So I'm good at that. You know, so I, I know what I'm good at, and dyslexia has given me that gift. I believe it has actually. Yeah. You know, it's made me concentrate and be very good at certain things. I'm not creative in the sense that you know, I know you spoke about people who are artists and writers I'm oh, not yeah. I'm not creative that way I'm just a, a good at getting people working well with people uh, engaging people well and getting them on my side and, and having a common goal I'm pretty good at that and you know luckily enough 
I'm here at Dyslexia Association, you know, as a director, you know, I, I was the chairman of Pieta House for a number of years, yeah. the large charity. I wrote to Pieta House wanted to be a director because I yeah. thought I could help them out. Yeah. And I became the chairperson then and I led them as chairperson for three and a half years. Yeah. I'm still a director now yeah. and I'm looking forward to going ahead with them. So, yeah, you know, you've got to... You've got to stretch to grow, and, and, and I'm still in that now. Uh, people sometimes say, you know, uh, what do you want? You know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, to be honest with you. I, I don't know what's happening next. I have a good idea of all the plans I have in my own head, and, and, and they're moving along well. I'm going to come in tomorrow, Donald, with a tattoo that says you've got to stretch to grow. So I'm just going to have a little dash off and then just credit you with it, Sean. I think you should start with a T-shirt saying that. <laughs> and just see if you're happy with it you know, before you go for the food. You know tattoo. me, go hard to go home. There you go. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for coming in uh, to the Dyslexia Association to chat with us. That's been fascinating. It's been inspirational. It's been hopefully of great interest to our listeners. We really appreciate your time, especially given how busy you are. So a big thank you from us for, for coming in. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, please share, please tell all your friends about this and that, the podcast from the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. And drop us a line at podcast at dyslexia.ie. Uh, this is Amy and Donald signing off from Dyslexia Association. <laughs>